You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Hey, uh, I just wanted to mention Paul and Penny. I'm just so inspired by that story. Um, a couple here joined us in Toowoomba to hear our CEO's journey. But uh, just in a, in a nutshell, he, if any of you jump online, you'll, you'll hear Mike Gore is our CEO in Australia. His, his journey was that he was abandoned at birth as a lowest caste orphan in India, in Calcutta. And a Catholic nun took um, a liking to him and smuggled him to a different state actually paid a bribe at an orphanage to have a, a, a new birth certificate made for him in a different caste that meant he was eligible for an adoption in Australia. And he's now the CEO of our ministry here. And so I just think of that, that you know, group of people that you've nurtured and taken in as your own kids, and I'll be praying that kind of blessing on them. Um, I love that. World changes under your care there. That's just a beautiful, inspiring story this morning. And uh, thanks, Pastor Steve, for the very, very warm welcome. Um, I know that this church has been a, a supportive church of the work of Open Doors for many, many years. I know Marg is here somewhere. I just can't see her right now. There you are, lovely. God bless you, Marg, and thank you for your tireless support of, of the work here and, and for advocating for Open Doors in this church. We're very, very grateful for that. And I know John is just pursuing the unity of the local church this morning and is away serving elsewhere in another local church, which I love. And I was sharing with John in the car park that uh, that, that is, is a great privilege that I get to see not only the work of what, what Jesus is doing through his church all around the world, but also here in Australia. The fact that denominations really not that important a deal when we're all under Jesus. Amen? Amen. Can I just pray for the word this morning before we go on? Lord, we lift up this time to you. We want to be, um, you know, obviously your servants, but also your children. And we, we want to hear your voice today. And we want to be, be eager to hear about what you're doing all around the world so that we can be a part of that. I pray that you'd inspire this community to affect change in this part of the Gold Coast. Desperately needs your message and your gospel and I pray that this word this morning would inspire us and challenge us, encourage us to advance your kingdom here as well as all around the world. In your name we pray, amen. Now Open Doors exists to help people follow Jesus all over the world no matter the cost. It's quite a simple sentence, but I'll just say that again, helping people follow Jesus all over the world no matter the cost. And that includes here, as I've already prayed this morning. Uh, this isn't just about us and them somewhere in a church over in Iraq or Syria or North Korea. This is about what Jesus is asking you to do in terms of advancing the gospel here on the Gold Coast. Uh, the way I like to illustrate what we do is probably through stories. I love telling stories and, and I get the privilege of sharing uh, the stories of some incredible people I've met and it, it sort of shows you the way we work around the world. We start in the most difficult places first. I'll share in a little bit about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the most difficult country in the world, in North Korea, um, also in Iran and India and Nigeria. But right now I wanted to tell you a story starting off uh, from the nation of Egypt. Uh, I've got an image that will come up behind me, maybe just the one before. It's actually an image of the back of my head just to prove that my... Oh, no, we've got some lyrics. All good. We'll get there in a moment. Basically, what was happening in this church uh, in, in Egypt, just to give you an idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus in Egypt, has anyone been to Cairo out of interest in the room? A few people. So you guys would understand, oh, my dear friend in the back corner. Hello. I haven't seen you for years and years. So like, <laughs> still playing the double bass. Lovely to see you. <laughs> now, um, 
In Egypt, you are met almost immediately when the plane lands into Cairo and you're flying out of Cairo, uh, you're driving out of Cairo airport, you're met with this visual conflict of, of the challenge of, of following Jesus when you can see, uh, you know, as, as far as the eye can see, crescent moons on top of mosques and crosses on top of churches. 30% Christian minority, 70% Islamic majority. And, uh, and, and the conflict is, is imminent. A lot of the countries we work, uh, Christians are under, under persecution in, in villages, in remote areas. But in Egypt, the conflict happens right in the center of the capital city, 16 million people in Cairo. And on the second day I was in Egypt, I was taken to this building. And I was standing, what you can see there uh, is looking at a memorial uh, to 27 women who lost their lives. Now the premise of this story was that a young man had taken upon himself, he had succumbed to an extremist ideology. I need to just pause here for a moment and tell you, I grew up in southeast Queensland, we're probably the most conservative pocket of Australia, I've now realised, and that's fine, but part of that is that I had this latent fear of Muslims that I just didn't even realise I had. Just as a, a child growing up, I thought that all Muslims were terrorists, that they were trying to kill me as a Christian, and it's just not the truth. And my challenge to that is, how are we ever going to see people come to Jesus when our first impression of them is fear? And I think that Jesus is working through us to, to help uh, remove that presence of fear in people's lives. But in this case, this young man had uh, succumbed to an extremist ideology and he'd taken it upon himself to kill a prominent Christian leader. Now, he'd grown up in the mosque uh, in Egypt and it's quite a simple kind of structure. There's one building and one prominent leader. So he actually had, had stra strapped explosives to himself and made his way to the local church, somehow got past a security checkpoint and thought that it would be similar, that there would be one building and one Christian leader and it would be easy for him to find. But he got a bit confused as the gate opened and as he got through and he could see not only one building but there was 27 buildings inside this compound. And so he was, you know, his plan had all already been foiled. Where am I going to go? How am I going to find this man that I've sought to kill today? So he changed his plan on the spot and just began stumbling around, listening for where he could hear the most sound. And on this morning, it was a Thursday morning, 150 women had gathered to pray and worship as they do every Thursday morning. There was one man present who was a security guard sitting in the the gateway to the chapel where these women were worshipping and he could see the man coming towards him in the distance and he knew almost immediately something's wrong here. He motioned for the man to stop and to turn around but he kept coming. Eventually in an act of profound bravery the security guard stood to his feet and he began to run, run towards the man and as he, as he approached him the man detonated the vest. The security guard died instantly but it created a a chain reaction that the chapel walls collapsed, the roof collapsed, and 27 women lost their lives on that day. You know, we, we hear stories like this all the time on the news. I don't know if you're like me, I, I read the news and I watch the news, and we can become a little bit desensitized to it. But for me, it was the first time I was standing in the physical location where an incident like this had happened, and the, just the, the sheer overwhelming horror of the moment was so profound. The next image uh, that you saw before was, was an image of the, the destruction. You could see the, the, the charcoal marks still up the side of this beautiful, you know, hundreds of year old building. 
Um, again, apologies if this is a little bit graphic, but you can see the blood of those women is still on that wall behind a sheet of perspex in their honour so that we would remember them and pray for them. We stood there for nearly four hours just praying for the, the families of those women. But you know what was more overwhelming for me than the terror or the horror of that moment is this next image. And it's a photo. The day I was there was a Thursday morning. 150 women <laughs> gathering to pray and worship Jesus. Almost in this visible act of defiance to ISIS saying, we don't care what you do to us, nothing will ever stop us worshipping our Jesus. Isn't that just the most beautiful image? I'll never forget the sound of their prayers and their worship. Behind that scaffolding, there was about 15 men working to continue to repair the church building while the women were worshipping on the other side. Now, we stood there, as I said, for a few hours, and our, uh, our partner leant over and whispered to me and said, there's a woman that I want you to meet. You see, the way we work in this kind of country, our partner was actually our, our travel guide. Gives you a little bit of an idea of how we get in and out of these kind of places. She's just a tour guide. But she was the first responder on this day. And she said, I've seen a woman over the courtyard. I want to uh, introduce you to her. So she took me by the hand. And as we approached this beautiful woman, her name's Maria. I want you to look at her face so that you'll remember her. We're going to pray for her in just a moment. As I was approaching Maria, our partner said to me, now you can see this woman is wearing black, an indicator that she's still in mourning. And I was a bit confused because looking at that beautiful smile on her face, you can understand my confusion. She's full of hope and joy and faith. She's a beautiful woman. And as I approached her and as I got closer, it became clearer what her story was when I could see the photo around her neck was of a man. That man was the security guard who lost his life on that day. This is uh, his wife, Maria. I want you to think about your relationship with Jesus for a moment. And if an incident like this happened in your life, would you cling to Jesus or would you run from him? I can tell you Maria clung to Jesus. More than that, would you continue to worship in the same church where every single day when she turns up, she has a visual reminder of the place that her husband lost his life? Maria clung to that church community. But more than that, Maria had one request to her church. Can I do my husband's job in his honour? So the day I met Maria, she was sitting in that seat in the gateway to the chapel, welcoming people to church, praying for them, smiling at them. I always have a soft spot for the people that stand in the foyer of a church and greet people because I think of Maria. I think you've got a holy and a sacred job. Uh, greeting people to church. Think of that woman next time you turn up early for church and you're greeting people. That despite the challenges that she's faced, she still loves the community of faith that God has put her in. And we serve people like Maria. Remember helping people follow Jesus no matter the cost. We actually, uh, like I said, were the first responders on that day. Maria required, obviously, urgent trauma care and counselling. We were there for her. For that, we provided immediate emergency response, um, helped her feed her family. But more than that, we gave her a, a small business loan so that she's able to continue to feed her family and care for her family long into the future. And she just loves Jesus, just the most beautiful woman. Gives you a bit of an image of some of the practical ways we work all around the world. 
on that note, let's just pause for a moment and I'll show you what it looks like to follow Jesus all around the world. This is a map. Uh, we release this every February. Some of you may have already seen this. We call this the World Watch List. Uh, and it's a, just a visual indicator of the top 50 most difficult countries. The darker colors are the more difficult, the more dangerous ones. Starting with number one, just there on the right, top right-hand corner, most difficult country now for 18 years in a row to follow Jesus is North Korea. Isn't that amazing? 18 years in a row, the most difficult place. But the, the, the most amazing part about that is that despite the fact that it's been so difficult, our sources estimate that there are 300,000 Christians alive in that country. Just amazing. It's always been a fairly terrible strategy of the enemy to oppress his church because the opposite effect happens and it just explodes. That being said, of those 300,000 Christians, we estimate 70,000 of them are sitting in a prison cell somewhere in North Korea. Not just like an Australian prison, some of the most horrific human rights abuses known to men are happening to Christians in the nation of North Korea. I'll mention very briefly number nine is Iran. Iran uh, has been in the top ten many, many, for many, many years. Uh, but get this, the world's fastest growing church is the Iranian Evangelical Church. Isn't that amazing? And uh, we, uh, I don't know if this message is being recorded, I'm not really meant to say this fact too far, 85% of Bibles in that country, uh, we helped get there. So just amazing. God is doing amazing things through his church all around the world. I'll pause again and mention India, number 10. It might surprise many of you to see India this high on the world watch list. Uh, we, we see it as the world's largest democracy. Did you know that more people just voted in India than in every single Australian election combined? That gives you an idea of the size of the nation of India. Uh, and Christians are just a tiny minority. That being said, there are 70 million Christians in India. And there's an extremist group, a radical uh, Hindu group called the RSS. And they have a mission statement. I imagine the church here has a clear mission statement. The RSS have the mission statement to eradicate Christianity by the, from the nation of India by the end of December next year. 31st of December 2020 no more Christianity in India. Now that presents an obvious problem. What do you do with the 70 million Christians that are there? So they either convert back to Hinduism, which is like a homecoming ceremony, widely celebrated in community. They are forced out of the country or they're killed. And we are literally seeing accounts of 70 churches being burned in one week, pastors being killed indiscriminately, their children being taken away from them, tortured, raped. It's absolutely horrific so the nation of India needs our prayers again that being said our partners there will be reaching over 1.2 million people this year helping them continue to follow Jesus no matter the cost so again let's pray for India number 12 Nigeria even though Nigeria is quite low comparatively on the world watch list the largest number of Christian martyrs in the world come from this country alone over 90 percent of Christians that lost their lives for Jesus in the last year came from Nigeria, just over 4,000 people. I met one of our partners there and we sat and we wept with him. Uh, he used to talk about how it was difficult for him to pastor people that had lost their, you know, family members had lost their lives. 
uh, but then this kind of conflict came to his own family and he actually saw it as a gift because he was able to pastor and, and chart through uh, that journey with his people. So remember those four countries and we're just going to pause at that point and we're going to pray for Maria uh, in, in Egypt if you'd join with me in prayer. Lord God, we lift up these Christians all around the world, 245 million Christians who are experiencing a high level of persecution. But on a personal note, we lift up Maria to you right now, wherever she is in Cairo. Lord, I pray for her and for her beautiful daughters. We lift them up to you and I pray for her strength, for her endurance, her courage in you. Give her boldness. Uh, pray that you would um, continue to sustain her. Give her everything that she needs, Lord God, to remain in you. We just pray that she'd know your presence today. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Now you might be thinking, James, these are, are difficult things to hear. But I want to encourage you around the scriptures this morning. I'm going to look at two different portions of scripture, but starting here with Paul's encouragement to the church in Philippi. Now remember, Paul wasn't always known as Paul. He previously went by the name Saul. And he was an expert in the art of persecuting Christians. He would have been something like the leader of ISIS. We mentioned North Korea, Kim Jong-un. I reckon Saul was probably in that category in terms of the fear that Christians had of him. But then we know he had a profound encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Amen? And God had a plan for his life. And I want you to think about those leaders and I want you to begin to pray for them. Not that they'd just be eliminated or destroyed or killed. I've heard people say to me, why don't we just bomb them in North Korea? That was a Q&A question I had once in a church. I reckon there's probably a better option is that we pray for their salvation. <laughs> and I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm praying for North Korea. But Saul met Jesus and he became Paul. He then went on to experience extreme persecution himself. And here he is writing to other Christians who are enduring persecution. He's writing from his prison cell in chains. And have a listen to the way he talks about his suffering. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Let's just pause there for a moment. This isn't a bad news story. The suffering and the persecution isn't always a bad thing. Here Paul himself encourages us, wait a minute, don't be alarmed friends. The things that happened to me have actually helped to take the gospel forwards. Here he says, so it's become evident to the whole palace guard, I love this little phrase, and to all the rest, just a random unnamed group of people that now know about Jesus. It's become evident to the whole palace guard that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, this is now you and me, I like to think about myself in this prayer, have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I see that as part of my responsibility for for the body of Christ here in Australia is to share these stories so that you and I would become more bold to share the message of Jesus here in Australia. If Maria can continue to advance the gospel in Egypt despite the risk of an imminent attack on her church, surely I can tell my neighbour about Jesus. I don't know that a negative Facebook comment is really 
the worst thing that could happen to me in my life. Am I right? If they can follow Jesus there, then I can follow Jesus here. I'll tell you another story from the nation of Vietnam. It might surprise you. This is, again, a border country to where these beautiful people are serving uh, in Thailand. Vietnam is the 20th most difficult country in the world to follow Jesus. That's often very surprising to Aussies because it's actually the sixth most popular tourist destination. I don't know if anyone here has been to Vietnam. It's a beautiful country, but very, very difficult to follow Jesus. It's one of five communist states left in the world, uh, overtly atheist, and they hate Christianity at a governmental level. Now, that being said, even though they're an atheist country, there are still pockets of people right throughout the country that still worship other idols and other gods, animism, um, ancestor worship, particularly through the Central Highlands. There's a group called the Hmong people, previously unreached people group. And uh, we had some partners there. The way we work in that part of the world is that we think it's immensely important to get the word of God into their hands. But it's not just as easy as dropping a Bible in there because they don't have a written language yet. So our partners there take 14 years to work with the locals to create a written language. I don't even know how you would do that. That blows my mind. I can't get my head around creating a written language. But anyway, 14 years, however, is too long. So in the meantime, we need to create a verbal version of the Gospels for them. And we record it onto these little solar-powered speakers with a little SD card in it. And they can hook it over the horns of their cattle while they're plowing their fields. And they listen to the Gospel in their native language. It's a really important principle in terms of world missions because Vietnamese are told Christianity is an American religion. They still hate the Americans from the war. And so they're told, have nothing to do with Christianity. It's, a, it's all about English and it's all about white people and it's about the Americans. But then they say, well, wait a minute. How is that possible? Because Jesus is speaking to me in my language. Isn't that beautiful? They hear the gospel and they hear the words of Jesus in their native language and it's just a beautiful thing. Many people profoundly come to Jesus, like the people on the next slide who I had the privilege of meeting. The man in the middle, his name is Din Van Zen. And he is the same age as me within one month. So we connected almost immediately. And I say almost because for the first 25 minutes, he was looking at me like I was some kind of ghost. I was the first white man he'd ever seen. <laughs> and so that freaked him out a lot. Um, but eventually we sort of broke that barrier down uh, through two translators, by the way, to speak with him. And Din Van Zen heard the gospel through one of these kind of impromptu cattle horn broadcasts and profoundly came to Jesus, ran back to his village uh, of 100 people. Just think about that for a moment. Probably the capacity of this room is that man's entire life, everyone he knows, 100 people. He tells as many people as he can about Jesus. And within three months, five families have come to the Lord. That would be like revival breaking out. Can you just think about that? Five families, probably 10, 15, 20, that's probably a fifth of that community is now Christian. Now the other locals become concerned. You see, they still worship these other gods, sacrifice animals and food to these idols. So they become concerned, wait a minute, what happens if they stop performing the ritual sacrifices? So they notify the local authorities. Surprisingly easy to do because there's a ratio of one police officer for every 12 citizens. The government is everywhere. They know everything about everything in this part of the world. So they call a local town hall meeting, put all 100 villages inside, 
And they put Din Venzen up on stage, wheeling a very literal propaganda machine, projector screens and a PA system. And they begin to roll video after video of malnourished African children with their clothes falling off. And they say to the villagers, if you allow this man to convert your village to Christianity, this is what will happen to you. Your children will die. Your crops will fail. So they do that every night for seven nights. Until by the end of a week, this group of people that used to be his friends and his family now hate him, screaming at him, swearing, spitting on him, spitting on his children. The government know our job here is done, so they pack down the PA system and leave town. They don't want to be seen to actively persecute Christians. It's not good for diplomacy or tourism. And they let the villagers do their worst. Dim Venzen began crying as he told us story after story. He had uh, a basic plantation of rice. He was a, you know, a substantial farmer that was just looking to, to supply food for his kids. They would let cattle loose through his property, destroying his crops, so his family had nothing to eat. He was a bit of an entrepreneur and had a small plantation of trees so that he could mill the trees into paper and sell it at the market to give his kids an education. Just think how demoralizing this would be. And the locals came through and just cut the trees down in front of him while taunting him. By now he began to sob uncontrollably as he was telling us that he had just enough income to support uh, the growth of, of one pig. I could tell there was a a bit of a cultural barrier here. You know, an animal like that doesn't mean much to us where we just drop down to the supermarket and buy some pork, but it was much more than that. This represented three years' salary for that man, this animal. He was planning to take it to the market. It would have given his kids an education to lift them out of poverty. The villagers came through, killed the animal in front of them, and cooked it and ate it while taunting him. He was sobbing. And I could tell that animal represented his, part of his identity, you know, his blood, sweat, tears. Story after story, some of the villagers snatched his newborn child out of his hands, threatened to throw the child on the ground. He managed to just get away with their lives. We asked Din Van Zen, why do you follow Jesus? We couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Surely the pressure's too much. Why? Tell us. Please, why do you follow Jesus? I'll never forget his answer. He said, because I know him. I want you to think about your relationship with Jesus. Some of you here might just be going through the motions of church. And to be honest, I possibly was at that point in my journey too. And it made me ask that question. Do I actually know Jesus to the point that I would follow him to that extent? But even more than that, we offered to move him to a different village very unusual, because our job is to strengthen Christians to remain. But we thought, you know, this is so intense and so severe, maybe we should move you somewhere else so you can restore your health. And do you know what he said to us? If I go, who will share the gospel with them? It ruined me. Because I think about my life and I get home and I push the little button on my garage door remote and I drive into my garage and I close it behind me and I live my comfortable, safe life and I don't tell anyone about Jesus. <laughs> but that man, 
is willing to go through that torture and torment because of his love for his Saviour. Let's have a look. The Apostle Paul, you know what? I always forget to close this story off. (laughs) I leave it there. You might be wondering what happened to that man. What's the next part of his story? Well, we put him through Bible college. He now oversees this massive network of very illegal underground churches and is seeing tens, hundreds of people come to Jesus. Have a look at this, uh, this verse, this encouragement from Paul as he closes. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those words have taken on new meaning for me after I meet people like this. People literally staring death in the face. For me to live is Christ. If I'm here, I serve him. But if I die, I get to live with him and worship him forever. I'll just jump the next story due to time and we'll close with the words of Jesus. And I just think this is so beautiful that Jesus obviously had a plan and a purpose for us around this. Here Jesus is prophesying, I believe, his own imminent death. But I think it's more than that, and he has a promise for us amidst our suffering. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I want you to think of those, the image of those 27 women that lost their lives on that day. Maria's husband who gave his life for others. Din Van Zen, who is staring death in the face in Vietnam right now, that their death isn't in vain. If it dies, it produces many seeds. I think that's what my job is, is to distribute the seed. It reminds me of the book of Revelation where it says that they will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I think the testimony is the seed. It's my prayer for you today that their stories, that their death, their suffering wouldn't be in vain, but it would produce a harvest of faith and hope, strength, courage in your lives as you share the message of Jesus in your communities. Why don't we just pray as I close. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful church. And I thank you that you have called these people here by name. I pray that even there are people that needed to hear this message today that maybe have become a little bit reserved in their willingness to share the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would embolden them and encourage them, strengthen them, give them faith, Lord God. We lift up Din Van Zen wherever he is right now, Lord Jesus. Pray that you'd help him to continue to advance the gospel in that nation, that part of the world. Right around the Middle East, Christians even in North Syria right now that are under attack, Lord, from from the uh, surrounding nations. We pray for their strength, Lord God. Pray that your church would prevail amidst the suffering. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. I believe Pastor Steve's gonna mention I believe Pastor Steve's gonna mention I believe Pastor Steve's gonna mention I believe